Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and open to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 4, and we're going to pick up there in our study, uh, beginning chapter 4, verse 1. I would love to cover the whole chapter. It's it's, uh, probably not reasonable to do so in the time that would be reasonable for us to hear. So we're going to cover at least the first 12 verses um, as well as we can. And so let's look at these verses in God's holy word. I, I think we should walk away. There was a title I give to this text. We should walk away saying how blessed we are. So begin this year, uh, really a walk away with how blessed we are, that our gratitude would flow into the way we live our lives and the way we worship in this coming year. And chapter 4, verse 1 through 12 certainly aims to do that. Let's pick up, and I'll actually pick up with uh, the last verse of chapter 3. It says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. Again, I think the text lends to a message, the message that Paul intends to have those who are listening to walk away saying how blessed we are. It's a message that uh, is on the cusp of standing with the law and not against the law. And what Paul means by that in standing with the law, he he says on the contrary, we uphold the law is detailed now as we go into the example of Abraham as the one who is the father of all who believe. And in entering into this text, we have to keep in mind where we've been. And so by way of review, I'd just like to remind us that the purpose for which Romans was written was to prepare an existing church to be strengthened by the in-person preaching of the gospel. And with that in mind... What you have here is 
contributing to that preparation. Why would it be that Paul would speak about this salvation that is primarily about a salvation that is helping us at the bar of judgment when we have to stand at the end of our lives or at the coming of our Lord and be dressed in His righteousness alone to be justified? And also, secondarily, a a salvation that impacts us day to day whereby we conquer the world, meaning the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That this salvation is not primarily spoken of in terms of uh, an event whereby the person has become a believer and is justified, but is primarily in Paul's mind the focus of what it means to live the Christian life and to die with confidence that you will stand before this judge justified. And he's preparing this congregation in Rome so that when he comes, they can mutually strengthen each other. Preacher and the congregation mutually building up each other in the faith by nothing less than in-person preaching of the gospel. In Paul's mind, it was absolutely necessary for the strengthening of the church to be present with the church and among the sheep. And it wasn't just so that he would be able to strengthen them, but it would be so they would be able to strengthen him. So it is a body that Christ puts together and he's preparing them. And why would he, back to the question, why would he have to talk about this matter where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. And the obvious thing would be, it would be very difficult to show up and to preach to a congregation to strengthen them when there is such division among them. So it's obvious, at least to that respect. But it's also necessary that the way he speaks about justification by faith is so clearly understood by the congregation that they know what it is to be a Christian. It would be very hard to be preaching to a congregation of those in Rome where half of the body doesn't understand justification by faith and they're not believers. It would be quite impossible to strengthen something that hasn't become something And therefore, as you go later in this chapter, you'll find that the confidence that Abraham had was that he knew a God who could make something out of nothing. He's the God of ex nihilo, which is a Latin term that simply speaks of speaking the world into existence out of nothing. He's one in whom Abraham uh, believed could raise the dead. And therefore, we'll look at the nature of faith later. But today we're looking at primarily not justification by faith, but the lack of partiality that God has towards Jew and Gentile. That there would be nobody in the congregation that would have a different status above others in the congregation no matter their heritage. We have learned in chapter 1 that indeed the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and righteous men 
And we know that there has been a sufficient law from heaven revealed against all, Jew and Gentile. We've learned in chapter 2 and forward that he has addressed primarily this Jewish man, this O-man of the text. And he seems to go on and diatribe throughout the letter. It's hard to tell where he ends. And therefore, it's safe to assume he's continuing in this type of diatribe. But there, he's not addressing the Gentile. He's addressing the Jew who may think he has something to boast in concerning the law. And they have a word as well. It's written. And that written word gives them even greater responsibility to have believed and honored the Creator. But what Paul argues is, whether it is those who don't have the written word, they do have a word from heaven, or whether it is those who have the written word who have greater responsibility, all are subject to the word and to the Creator God over the universe. And therefore, we stand in great need. And that need has been displayed in leading up to this chapter. Chapter 3, of course, has told us what justification by faith really is. And so, scholarship is helpful here that when you move to chapter 4, it would be really easy to say this is about justification by faith, but it's not. It is about removing distinction among the congregation so that they can know what salvation or justification is. And so we must not lose that focus. He will, he will begin with it. He will end with it. But in between, he's working through the issue of faith, justification by faith. By the end of it, of chapter 4 especially, he comes to the statement, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or in verse 24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And so he is showing that this is actually not something that's just about Abraham. This is not something that's just about the Jews. It's not something just about Gentiles. It's about the fact that there's only one salvation that's declared from beginning to end in the Bible, the 66 books that we have. There's no other way. The confusion is very rampant today. And we know functionally so because of all the things going on in the Middle East. And people are so confused that the very subject which we look at here comes into focus. And that is how do you view the ethnically Jewish people? And it still seems in our days from dispensationalism that there's this idea of stating not in words, but in the way we look at the Jews, that somehow they have a different status above the Gentiles, which declares to us very clearly we don't understand what Paul says in this text. Because his aim is to remove all distinction so that there is no status of Jew or Gentile anywhere in the world and throughout all time that gives him the right to become a child of God, but it is by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. And there is absolutely no other way 
to be saved in all the history of mankind than to looking to the One who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we betray what we really believe when we begin to give favoritism towards any ethnic group in the world, including the Jews. And so, this text will make that very plain. And so let's get into the text. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? I have linked the previous verse to this, saying that how do you stand with the law then? Abraham is one who stood with the law. Abraham is one who was commendable uh, for his lawful ways. Commendable for his integrity uh, by the end of his life. He is one who is a forefather according to the flesh to the Jewish people. He is one in whom Jesus uh, had confronted the Pharisees especially on when they said Abraham is our father. And Jesus said very clearly, no, Abraham's not your father. Your father is the devil. That sounds quite a strong tone, doesn't it? That Jesus would confront people like that. And the truth is, is that if God is not your father then it could be equally said of you that the devil is your father. And the reason being is that you have to change families. There has to be a complete change in in who you follow and, and who cares for you and who your shepherd is. And to be shepherded by Satan or to be shepherded uh, out there by one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, you're only going to imitate those who come to kill and steal and destroy. Your fruit is going to be that which is cancerous to any people around you. Bitterness is going to always rise up in you that's going to defile the many. And instead of bringing an atmosphere of peace and love and grace and mercy to the people around you, you bring a stench of satanic influence that destroys lives and doesn't save lives. Well, don't you want to have God as your Father? Well, according to Paul, to have God as your Father, you also have Abraham as the Father of the faith. Meaning He leads the way. When you follow these steps of faith, you are in the way of salvation. You are, as a child of God, living for the glory of God by the grace of God. And that is an absolute miracle. Because Paul says elsewhere, you were dead in your sins and the trespasses. And it also says you were following the prince of the power of this air. And the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now at work in the sons of disobedience. You have a different spirit before the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you. Well, what did Abraham gain according to the flesh? Some would translate this. In a sense, what was gained according to the flesh by Abraham, our forefather? Whatever the case is, Abraham is brought into focus here. A question is raised, and then a statement is asserted. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Stop there. Did Abraham have something to boast about? I think he did, according to the flesh. According to the flesh, Abraham is the man. 
who goes up on a mountain and offers his son Isaac on an altar until God stays his hand in the knife that is held above him and he's told that he will provide on that mountain the lamb. And it's understood that it's on that very mountain that thousands of years later, our Lord Jesus Christ is crucified in the place of sinners. And He is the one who is our justification. Did He have something to boast about? I think He did. I don't know many men like that. Willing to take His only Son, the one that was promised to Him, up on a mountain and obey the Lord completely. So according to the flesh, he did have something to boast about. He became something. He became something great. He became an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. You see, he was a man who upheld the law. If there were ever a man that was changed by the gospel, it was Abraham. And Paul himself boasted in the fact that he worked harder than any of them, speaking of the apostles. But he says, but it wasn't I. It was Christ in me. But did he have something to boast about? Yes. Yes, there's something to boast about according to the flesh. When someone is changed truly, genuinely in their lives, there is a sense in which the believer may be proud in the Lord of the work that has been accomplished. They're different. They're changed. They're, they're people who walk according to the law, that love God's law. They're sanctified by the law of God. There's something to boast about up to a certain point, but it is never without this qualification but not before God. Not before God. It's like in a symphony when there's this pause. It's like R.C. Sproul describes in his own commentary of preaching whereby in the pause there's this profound meaning. When it says here, what, for, what, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And there it is, the pause but not before God. Which indicates the way we must look at this is from God's perspective. From God's perspective, whatever is accomplished in the life of a believer, even the chief, the father of believers like Abraham, has been accomplished by God. Thus he, he says, before God, nobody's going to be boasting that this is accomplished on their own. This is only accomplished because there is the Spirit of God in us. And if you have not the Spirit of God in you, the Bible says you don't belong to the Lord. And so the only way you know, the only way you know that the Spirit of God is in you is that throughout life you become obedient to God's law and in the spirit of that law. And you might just up to a moment have something you think you could boast about in it, but it is always 
submissive to how God sees our lives. We should want to stand before God having accomplished something in this life. Having done something in which we might be able to say was great for the Lord. We should live for the glory of God and to enjoy Him forever. And Abraham did that. But he could not boast before God and apart from God. And so, the audience to which he is speaking to here, Paul, to the Romans, is likely majority Gentile, but they needed to know something. Because as many of the Jews were returning after the death of Claudius from different places, we have evidence of that in chapter 20 of Acts, I believe that's a chapter, whereby you have those who have been exited out of Rome, now begin to return to this congregation, believing Jews, the Gentiles in the congregation need to know these Jews don't have greater status than them, that the body of Christ is the body of Christ. And it may be that you see certain advantages the Jews had, which they had the Word of God. They had knowledge of those things in the book. But it did not give them a greater status. It gave them a greater responsibility. Before God, the way God sees it. Which, by the way, how does God see what we're doing today? How does God see what's happening at this very moment? He sees that what is being proclaimed in these moments is authoritative over our lives. It has binding authority. What you hear here from the Word of God, we are demanded to submit to on the basis it is the Word of God proclaimed. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And it is that in which we are to hear and to heed with all of our hearts. You see, it's important to know how does God see things? How does God see your life? Well, if you're in Jesus Christ, the good news is He sees you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He sees you through His righteousness. He loves you as a child. By, his, by the Father. It's an amazing thing. How does God see things? You could take up just a whole sermon, just meditating upon all that Scripture says, how God sees things. But how does God see this? The problem today, we're always appealing to other authorities. And there are many authorities that exist. There is tradition that follows Scripture. There is reason, and then there is experience. These are all authorities by which we do theology all the time, whether knowingly or unknowingly. We're always doing some type of theology with these four authorities. But Scripture has the final authority. And the problem with the Roman church, where they went, was they began to put tradition over Scripture. The problem later is people began to put reason over Scripture. And then finally, we see that the problem was that people began to put their experience 
over Scripture. Scripture is what Paul turns to because it's authoritative. And so as highly as we esteem the creeds and the confessions, they must submit under Scripture. They are not infallible, they are not inerrant, and they bear no supreme authority at all. We are to submit to Scripture. So if you were to come to me and say, I want to know what the confession says about this, I'm not interested. If you want to come to me and say what some commentator says about this, I'm not interested. Because what we're proclaiming here in this moment is what God says. And it's sufficient. It is sufficient for you to turn from sin and to turn to God in repentance. You need no other word at all. Because Paul doesn't say, what does... What does a creed say or what does a confession say? You know what he says? He says here, for what does Scripture say? And I beg of you to have that attitude in life. You can have no peace without that. It is not long before, even if you don't become Roman Catholic, You will live as if you are, without certainty, without stability, without a centeredness on the Lord, without the joy of salvation, without a sense of wonder in life. I would beg of you to make it your aim that at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, you ask, what saith Scripture? Not what somebody said about Scripture, but what says the Word. And where the Word is spoken, it is authoritative. So here he says, what does Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? I love how Sinclair Ferguson unfolds this. It indicates, first of all, it is authoritative. It also indicates that he believes, he doesn't say the Scriptures, he believes the 39 books of the Old Testament are absolutely inspired and authoritative. He looks at them not as books. He looks at them as a whole. And that's largely what's referred to as the law in many places throughout here. Now, let me say something about how we arrive at this important point. What does the Scripture say is also over and against any Jewish tradition And in the background of this text, there were traditions that spoke about why Abraham could boast because he had kept God's law perfectly. Where does that come from? Well, actually, you know, a lot of times I'll read over things very, um, I don't want to say casually, but most of the time I may read tradition says this and not necessarily have known, where is this coming from? I would assume it would come from the Pharisaical teaching, the Sanhedrin, some of the Mishnah, and different teachings specifically. But we actually have places where, um, in the apocryphal writings, where Abraham is said, point blank, to be 
one who has kept the law, and because he kept the law, he was justified. And that's why we do not include those things in Holy Scripture. We have 66 books. But it's helpful. It's helpful because I know where they're getting it from. So I, I looked up 1 Maccabees chapter 2, where it speaks about this very thing. And it, it says there, and uh, in fact, I brought with me a Bible that actually has those things in it today. And I'll just read to you. This is what the Jewish people believed. This is what they were about. And so you wonder, where do they get this from? Well, they got it from apocryphal sources. And, uh, and, and so they, they, there's a section. Remember the deeds of the fathers which they did in their generations and received great honor and everlasting name. Was not Abraham found faithful when tested and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? That's 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 30, uh, 51 and 52. Okay, what does that tell me? It informs me of what James was dealing with, chapter 2. It informs me of what Paul was dealing with in chapter 4, Romans. James 2, right? He's speaking about that incident where Isaac is offered up, justifying, we would say, to be more clear, justifying the faith that one says they have. You can't separate faith from works. They go together. It's a faith that works or a living faith that saves. So James is arguing something in a different context among the church that is double-minded. And because of their double-mindedness, they're treating each other badly. And because they're treating each other badly, God is judging them in real time. And he calls them to deal with certain things so that they will be made well, physically and spiritually. That's James. Romans chapter 4 the way this informs us is that since the Jewish tradition was that Abraham was justified when he offered up Isaac, and that's the way he was made righteous. Paul is doing just like Jesus did his Lord when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Or let's say it this way. He's doing the same thing he did before Satan. When Satan is saying Scripture. Isn't it astounding that the devil would be so bold to take Scripture and quote it to the one who wrote it? Just an arrogance beyond belief. And what did Jesus do to battle there? In every case, he says, it is also written. He quotes the Scripture in the intent for which it was made. So the same thing, Sermon on the Mount or dealing with the devil, Paul. Paul is saying, what does the Scripture actually say and teach? And he argues it was not Abraham justified in Genesis 22. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. And it makes all the difference in how you're going to do church. And it makes all the difference on the how you're going to view what it means to become a child of God. Because if it is chapter 22, we might make salvation in something that's gained by works 
But if it's chapter 15, it is all of grace. And I, for one, am glad Paul debunked the tradition of men in 1 Maccabees 2. And I believe he's actually quoting it. And he's saying the real teaching is that we are saved by grace. Now let's work out how this is meted out in the text. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's your quote that sets forth the uh, the statement that sets forth Genesis 15. And I want to just stop there a moment and tell you what the word believed is there. It's in the Hebrew, if you go back in Genesis 15, the Hebrew, the believe word there is aman, which you should recognize because it would sound just like amen. And amen would simply be an affirmative, a yes to, um, a yes to God. Now notice, it doesn't say he believes in God. It will say that he believes in Christ and he rests on Him later here in the text. But he foremost believed God. He believed Him. You see, to believe in God doesn't save. To believe there is a God doesn't save. But to believe God, that justifies. You see, all types of people know there is a God, according to chapter 1. The law of the heavens reveals it, but they aren't saved. Salvation comes when you actually start believing God. And the foundation of anything you could be commended for, before man and God, for the Lord grew, grew before men in the stature of, wisdom and all of those things before God and man. So it is the believer should grow being recognized as a man of integrity outside the church and in the church. And most importantly, before God. It is important that we understand salvation is not given to everybody who believes there is a God, but it is given to those who actually believe God. And those who actually believe God are going to follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. Because Abraham is simply following the Lord. Okay. So let's quote chapter 15. And let me back up to chapter 2 just to give some further support. When it says, if Abraham was justified by faith, that is a first condition in the Greek. I don't expect you to know the Greek. I do expect you to be able to reasonably think this out. And that is, when Paul spoke that way, it was an absolute yes. Abraham had reason to boast in the flesh. Now, that's either a rhetorical advice on the one side, the majority opinion, or the minority, he actually is saying Abraham something to boast about. I chose the latter in the text. The meaning comes out the same. Don't get all tied up in that. But the issue of the matter is, is that Abraham before God, the only way he could be justified and the only way he would produce commendable works where he would be as great as he is, and he was a great man, was because the foundation was found in his believing God. Where are you at with that? Not that, Do you know facts about God? Do you know facts about theology? But you don't believe God. And believing God means 
following the Lord. It could be displayed in the, in the picture that is often used by evangelists of the chair where one can say, I see the chair, it exists. They can philosophize all over that this is a chair. But not many are going to sit in it and trust the chair to hold them. And faith is understood as that which not merely that you see there's a God that you can philosophize or theologize. Yes, I'm making words up as we go. But I'm not making up truth. The real question when you stand at the end of life and all along the way as to why you can or cannot conquer sin is if you've sat in Christ. If you've been placed in Him. If you've trusted Him. Because that's the only way to be saved. And so this is what He's doing in the text. He's he's conveying these things. Why? Come back to the point. Why is He doing all this? Because the church needed to have this settled so they could be strengthened. If they don't have this foundation, there's nothing to strengthen. You can't strengthen something that doesn't exist. It's a fool's errand to try to strengthen a church that isn't a church. A Christian that's not a Christian. You get this wrong, you show up, and you're trying to strengthen something that isn't there. The preacher shows up to strengthen those who are God's children. And that's what Paul wants to do. And he wants to be strengthened by those who are God's children. And they've got to be God's children to strengthen him. Otherwise, they just deplete each other. Now, he gives an example, another illustration. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It makes it very clear that Abraham was saved by receiving this as a gift. He was saved by receiving salvation as a gift. Um, It's put this way. In our layman language, we would say that you... Your, your boss gives you a check for your work of the week or the work of the day, depending on how he pays you. Um, it would be quite offensive as, as if he viewed that as a gift to you. No, you earned it. You, you earn the wages. Well, what are the wages that man has earned before God? Death. The wages of sin is death. And therefore, man earns Wages of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know these words come later in Romans, but they're applicable here. They're there. The idea is there. But he's saying salvation is not something you earn like a paycheck that is your due. It's due to you because you've done work and that work is now paid for as a service that you perform. He's saying salvation is not like that. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. Don't get confused that faith is something that's of a work. It's not a work. It is through faith. Not by faith itself that you're saved. 
It's through faith that you lay hold of Christ who is your righteousness. And it's vital that we understand it is a gift from beginning to end. And so Paul's arguing that Abraham was saved Genesis 15, not Genesis 22. He was saved and it was a gift from God. And then he goes in, if it wasn't enough, he's using somewhat what most scholars believe, uh, the, the, the manner in which rabbis would prove things by two witnesses. And so he brings in Abraham. He comes to David. He comes back to Abraham for a reason. But he brings David in. He quotes Psalm 32. And he says, he says here that, picking up verse 5, and to the one who does not work and believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me not skip over that before David. The word counted there is an accounting term. It can be translated imputation. It means that you have here an imputing to the account uh, of these ungodly ones righteousness. I mean, it's one thing to have your, um, your debt paid It's another thing when someone has paid your debt and then filled your account with an infinite amount of righteousness. And that's what God has done for the believer. He's forgiven and cleared the debt as a gift. And he didn't just leave the account empty. He filled the account with infinite righteousness. There's, There's no more. There's no need for what the Roman Catholics speak of as purgatory to burn off Something. There's no need to pray to some saint in order to somehow get some of their good works. It's, it's all been done in Christ perfectly, infinitely, gloriously, because He is both God and man. It's an amazing gift. I mean, it's, it's a great gift somebody would pay off your debt. But it's extraordinary that somebody pays your debt off and fills your account. And ensures the account will always be full. Of righteousness. I mean, we could just end it there, how blessed we are. But the quote of David is quite important. We don't need to gloss over it because David is now one who would be viewed as an Israelite indeed. And the quote of, of Psalm 32 it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And the big deal here is, we know David. David in the Bible is the one who committed the great sin in the adultery incident with Bathsheba. Here, this man is uttering these words. Blessed. It can mean happy, but it means more than happy, I think. Blessed, acceptant. And all all life long, people are trying to find acceptance from someone. And some people are wondering about their acceptance with God. And how they can be accepted of God. And this text is answering that. It's saying the way to be accepted before God is only by grace the grace of the forgiveness He offers 
through His Son, Jesus Christ, only. This is how one is blessed. I see a lot of people say they're blessed. But I wonder if they know the meaning that Paul said is blessing. Blessing is that your lawless deeds are forgiven. How do you stand with the law? How did Abraham stand with the law? He was first forgiven of his lawless deeds. His sins were covered. He was a man against whom the Lord will not, future tense, ever count his sin. You think David walked away with anything but saying, how blessed I am. Because I know my lawless deeds. I know my sins. I know my guilt. But yet God forgave me. Remember Nathan when he, he looked at him? We don't know how he looked at him, but we know that he confronted him. He told him the account of someone who had all these things, all the kingdom and anything that he would ask for of the Lord, he would give it a thousand times over. And yet he goes and takes a poor man's little lamb and slaughters it when he has multitudes of them. Takes the poor man's only lamb. And David, of course, rises up saying that that man deserves to die. And Nathan confronts him and says, you're that man. And David could have denied it. David could have tried to justify himself. But because God gifted that man with salvation, he didn't deny it. He confessed it. And therefore, the prophet said, as the voice of God, you're forgiven. And there's nobody in all the world that probably would say it the way David would say it. How blessed I am. Because to whom much is forgiven, they love much. They're different. David was different, even through all the trials of his life. And so it's no wonder that Paul brings in David. He brings in David and he says he, he didn't count his sin. He forgave his sin. It has always been for the Jew and the Gentile or the circumcised and uncircumcised because Abraham is portrayed here as the father of both. That's what verses 9 through, nine through 12 will demonstrate. I'm not able to explain all of it in the time given. I've spent too much time in the first eight, but that's okay. Sproul did the same, so I'm in good company. Um, but my, my aim this morning was, yes, to hit 12 verses, got eight. But my, my big aim here was to just get the feel of this text. That when you get salvation, you get what this really is about. You walk away. You walk away and say, how blessed we are. You start with how blessed I am because it has to be personal. You know, the reason why people in the church aren't strengthened is because they haven't really begun yet. 
They've never really received Jesus Christ and His salvation as a gift. People scratch their heads. Why is this person not growing? Why Why is this person not walking in obedience? Why is this person the way they are? Why bitterness rises up in them? Why are they not effectual in their care and their love for those around them? And the answer is they've never really begun. In order to be strengthened, Paul's displaying very clearly, if you're going to be strengthened, you've got to understand justification by faith to begin with. It's an absolute gift. It's a gift that is an eternal gift. It's a gift that sets the pace for you to uphold the law. Because you're not fighting for acceptance. You've been accepted in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not for everybody because it's a gift. And some people will reject that gift. Some people won't receive that gift. But all for whom the Son died for will, all for whom the Father chose will, and all to whom the Spirit of God applies this Gospel, they will. And they will be strengthened and they will be a mighty people that in the flesh may have reason to boast because something actually was accomplished with their lives. But not before God. Because before God, Paul's telling us, we have nothing to boast in except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This should set our pace and this should set our priority for the year. And this should be our allegiance for life. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank You for Your grace to deliver the Word. May it be given to those who have ears to hear. May you bless. May you turn us all to focus on your Son this year. And may that which we partake of at this table be that which truly represents the emblem of our unity and our acceptance of this great gift in our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we belong by grace and grace alone. Give us understanding of Your Word continually and help us to be satisfied in it this morning so that we may be glad all of our days. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you come.